time with you uh, this morning going through God's Word. Uh, last weekend, uh, Pastor Ben introduced a, a five-week sermon series that's based on the last few verses of Acts chapter 2 that is entitled, What the Church Really Means. And uh, our intent for, for this series was to serve as a little bit of a, a buffer between a, an extremely large uh, sermon series that we're going to begin in a, a few weeks through the book of Romans, but we wanted to give some time between Easter and then to, to spend uh, and look at the purposes of the church. And we want to remind uh, those who've been a Christians for a, a long time, and uh, we want to educate those who are perhaps new to the faith or, or maybe haven't even yet come to faith about the nature and the function of the church. And for many of us, no one has ever really told us exactly how the church is supposed to function and the way that it's supposed to work and the things that it's supposed to do. And instead, what we have done is we've just kind of assumed uh, how church is supposed to operate and what it's supposed to look like and, and, and how we should ultimately experience it. And unfortunately, uh, there are times when what we believe the church should do and, and operate is far different than how God believes the church should function and operate. So in order to discover God's perspective on this, we're going to focus on the Bible's description of, of the very first church that is found in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. Now, before we read it together, I, I want to give us all a little bit of, of context about what is actually going on. Uh, the very first Christian church, which was located in the city of Jerusalem, consisted of approximately uh, 120 men and women who had be become disciples of Jesus over the course of his three-year ministry. And uh, they were a motley crew of Jewish men and women, and that's not a, a band with long hair that sang some pretty lousy music back in the 80s when I was a kid. Uh, and they're made up of uh, a couple of guys who uh, owned a, a small fishing business. And then there was a, a tax collector who was in cahoots with the Roman government in exploiting the Jewish people. Uh, there's a, a political activist and probably anarchist would be a better term for him, who was originally part of a group of people who was uh, all in to overthrowing the Roman government I mean, and you can imagine these two guys together. I mean, you've got this guy who wants to destroy the Roman government, and then you've got this guy that's working with the Roman government, and somehow they're together. It would be like sending Ted Cruz and uh, Bernie Sanders out to share the gospel door to door or something like that. And in the midst of this, there was a woman who was a former prostitute, and most probably even a former Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus. Uh, so it's a pretty crazy, wild group of people. And uh, what we need to understand is this group that consisted of 120 people, they didn't stay at 120 for very long because 50 days after Jesus' resurrection, the, the leader of this first church, a, a fisherman by the name of Peter, stood before a crowd of thousands upon thousands of people. And, and these people had come to 
Jerusalem from pretty much all over the known world to celebrate the second harvest festival of the Jews in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 2, verse 5, tells us that this crowd were, in this crowd were people from every nation under heaven. There, there were Jews and Gentiles, which basically consists of everyone. Either you're, you're a Jew or you're not a Jew, and that makes you a Gentile. And these people are from what is nowadays modern-day Iran, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, Syria, Turkey, uh, Jordan, Palestine, Egypt, Libya, Greece, Italy, and, and many of the countries that are on the Balkan Peninsula. And I want you to listen to what happens to this incredibly diverse group of people as they listen to the Holy Spirit speak through Peter about the hope and salvation that comes from Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 2, verses 37 to 41. Now when they heard this, this is all the people, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, Peter bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. I want you to think about that for a minute. 3,000 people from every race, culture, ethnicity, educational background, economic status, political view. The same thing happened to all of those people. They were what? They were cut to the heart. They heard the proclamation of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and it seared their heart. It didn't matter who they were, where they were from, what they believed, what they had experienced, at the foot of the cross, they're all equal, and God's word sears their heart. So much so that they repent of their sins and they are baptized into the name of Jesus Christ all in one day. Think of the logistics of that. How do you even pull something like that off? All of a sudden, those who were, were many, they're now one. Those who were enemies, they're, they're now friends. No longer were they divided by, by politics. No longer were they divided by ideology. No longer were they divided by nationalism or race or, or societal position or anything else. Rather, they're unified under this common faith in Jesus Christ. And that, brothers and sisters, is just one example of the incredible beauty and incredible power 
of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And not only does the gospel reconcile people to God, but it also reconciles people to one another because no other faith system in the history of the world has the power to do that. In a world where sin has separated people first and foremost from God, and sin has separated us from one another, Christianity shines as the only bright hope in a very, very dark world. Now think about this for a moment. All of a sudden, in a matter of hours, we have the first megachurch with about 3,100 multi-ethnic people. It goes from a, a, a regular church, you know, the average church in America is about 75 people. It, it goes from being an average church, 120 people, in a matter of hours, to 3,100 people, complete with a second career pastor by the name of Peter, a staff of 11 other ministers that are made up of, of the remaining disciples, and a hundred plus other fully devoted followers of Christ who, who had experienced Jesus' teaching firsthand. And so you got to ask yourself, what do these people ultimately do? How does this work? And that's where verses 42 to 47 of Acts 2 come into play. So if you would open your Bible to there, Acts chapter 2, 42 to 47. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles on the tables around the room. Please feel free uh, to grab one of those. If you have a Bible at home, open it up. You can also watch it or read along on the big screen. And if you are able to stand, if you would do so in honor of God's word, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Now the first thing, as I, I was reading this passage, the first thing that I notice is, is the inclusive nature of the first church. But not just its inclusive nature, the incredible unity that comes out of this inclusive nature. Verse 42, we're told what? They devoted themselves. They were committed. They're sold out, all in for what? And it goes and it lists uh, several different things. It says what? They're devoted to the apostles' teachings, the very things that Jesus taught the apostles. The apostles now are teaching the people. They're, they're devoted to the fellowship, being with one another, caring for one another, they're devoted to the breaking of bread, the celebration of the Lord's Supper, sharing joint meals together, and to the prayers, which would have been like a liturgy, communicating corporately to God. And in verse 43, we're told what? 
and all came upon every soul. Not just some of them, but all came upon every soul. And all who believed, they were what? They were together and they hold, held all things in common. In other words, they're, they're sharing with one another. So much so that they sold their possessions and belongings and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. This isn't socialism going on here. The people still owned their stuff, but they were so incredibly generous, so sensitive to the needs of others that, that, that they helped everyone along the way. And there's this beautiful corporate nature. There's this beautiful togetherness there. These people, they actually loved one another. They loved being with one another. They weren't content with being apart. They loved to care for each other. They loved to eat with each other. And in verse 47, we're told that they loved to praise God together. They loved being together in order to worship. And that's what I want to talk about with you today. I want to talk about worship with you. Worship is one of those things that we think we understand, but I'm really kind of wondering, do we actually understand it? If you asked 10 different Christians, what is worship and how should we do it? You'll get 10 different answers. People will say such things as, well, worship is, is singing. And some will say, well, yeah, it's singing, uh, but you got to sing with music. Others will come along and say, well, you know, I'm from the Church of Christ. We don't, we don't ever use instruments. We sing without music. Some say you, you sing with an organ. Others say you sing with a band. Uh, people will say worship is praying, uh, praying by myself, praying uh, with others. Uh, other people will come along and say, well, well, worship is, you know, you need to stand when you hear God's word, or, or you need to sit for this, or you need to kneel at this point in time. Uh, people will say worship is about taking the Lord's Supper or reading the Bible. Uh, worship is being with God's people. It's being alone in nature. Worship is, is watching on the live stream. People have all these different perspectives on worship. And in the midst of all of those perspectives, there is confusion. And my desire is to try to clear up that confusion this morning by, by answering just two fundamental questions. We're not going to go into the weeds of worship today. We're going to look at just kind of two high-level questions that we want to answer. One, what is worship? And two, how are we to worship? So what is worship? If you've heard a, a, a message from really any pastor that, that talks about worship, the first thing that they will tell you is, is worship comes from an old English term that, that means worthy of reverence and honor. And Webster's Dictionary defines it this way. It says, worship is the extreme devotion or intense love or admiration of any kind. And what we find in the Bible is the Bible teaches that every person on the face of the planet, whether they know it or not, is actually a worshiper. They will either worship God 
or they will worship something else. Romans 1 says this, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. What is Paul telling us there? He's telling us that there is something that will always be an object of our affection. If it's not God, it's going to be something that God has created. And that something can be anything that we think of. It can be money. It can be power, position, prestige, pleasure. It can be another person. We can, we can worship our boyfriend or our girlfriend or our husband or our wife. Uh, many people, they, they worship their, their kids or their grandkids. There are a lot of people in this world, especially in America, that worship their political philosophy. There are those who worship their sexuality, they worship their ethnicity, others worship things that are in nature or creation. And make no mistake about it, you and I, there is something in our world that we ultimately worship. We will worship God or we will replace the worship of God with something else, but we will worship. Now the question then becomes, well, how do you know what you worship? I was listening to, to a sermon while I was doing my prep time this, this week, and, and the, the pastor gave, gave three diagnostic questions to help us determine that which we worship. And here they are. Number one, what is the thing we do that when we do it, we enjoy it so much that we lose complete track of time. It is so pleasurable, so enjoyable in our lives. Time just flies by. Number two, what is the thing that tends to consume the majority of our thoughts? What is the thing that we're constantly thinking about? That helps us understand that which we ultimately worship. Number three, what is the thing where we joyfully put all of our time or a lot of our time and a lot of our money? Now, I considered those questions as I was listening to this fellow's sermon, and to be very transparent, If I'm not careful in my life, the way that I might answer that question would easily involve a, a very expensive machine that was manufactured in 1979 that's got two wings 
and a tail, a, a 200 horsepower engine that, that moves Kathy and I from, from the Capital City Airport to the Springfield Airport near Dayton, Ohio to see our son and our daughter-in-law in two and a half hours. That's the thing that I come really close to worshiping instead of God, and I have to be very careful with that. It consumes a lot of my money, a lot of my thoughts, and time flies by when I'm doing it. Literally. <laughs> now, what Jesus teaches us is, is there's no such thing as worship neutrality. There, there, there's nothing neutral out there. There, there. There's one thing that you can worship, and everything else is bad to worship. This is what Jesus says. He, he says this in Matthew chapter 6. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. What Jesus is saying is he's saying is you can't have divided loyalties. And he's using the example of money because that's one of the things that really sucks people in, things that people ultimately worship. But Jesus is coming alongside and he's saying, you can't have these divided loyalties at all. You, you, you're either going to worship God or you're going to worship something else. In this case, he's using money as an example. Now, why is this? It's simple. Because God isn't into uh, divided loyalties. God, God doesn't share. God wants all of our attention and affection. And, and, and he is so clear about this. The first two commandments in the Ten Commandments, they actually deal with this whole issue of worship and what we worship. This is what they say. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, what is God saying in those two commandments? What is he trying to communicate? Basically, he's saying there are a lot of little gods out there. And you and I, we're going to be tempted to worship those little gods. He's also telling us that, that the God that we choose to worship, be it one of these little gods or, one of the, or, or God himself, whoever we choose to worship is going to have a radical impact on the way things go down, not only in our own lives, but in the lives of those who come after us, in the lives of our kids and our grandkids. When we choose to worship that which is not God, we bring pain not only to ourselves, but to those who mean the most to us. Now some of us get this. Because some of us have worshipped other things. And when that gets exposed, it has destroyed our families, destroyed 
our kids. Destroyed our grandkids. Some of us know it the other way because we weren't the perpetrator of the destruction. Instead, we were on the receiving end of the destruction. Mom or dad worshiped something that destroyed us. Or grandma or grandpa worshiped something that destroyed us. I know in my own family, my grandma and grandpa Baker, rabid alcoholics. Their alcoholism destroyed my mom, my dad, or my mom, my, my two aunts. My mom's youngest sister, she drank herself to death. Not figuratively, literally. She went into the basement. She was so depressed. She went into her basement over the course of, of several days. She drank about 120 liters of alcohol. Acute sclerosis of the liver. I buried her. Why? Because my grandma and my grandpa, they chose to worship something other than God. And to this day, my family suffers the effects of that. But when we choose to worship God, things radically change. Our kids have been blessed because Kath and I, God was so gracious to us to draw us to himself when we were 18 years old. Our kids have been blessed as a result of that. My mom and dad coming to faith in Jesus in 1994, they have been a blessing to my children. That blessing has flowed down because the object of our affection changed. Now, what's the hang-up with God? Why is he, he, he so exclusive about you and I only worshiping him? It's because he's the only one actually worthy of worship. He can be jealous because he's pure. He can, he can have a righteous jealousy. You and I, we can't possess a righteous jealousy, but God possesses a righteous jealousy. In the book of Revelations, the apostle John details what occurs in heaven around the throne of God. And what we find is that God is being worshiped. We're told that there are 24 elders and they sit around the throne of God and they say this, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. God. And God alone is the only one that is worthy of our worship. So then the question becomes, how do you do that? What does it look like? How do we worship God? And one of the best ways to discover how we worship God, one of the best places to look is in the fourth chapter of the book of John. It's actually where living water gets its name for. And if you have been around living water for any period of time, you have heard us go through this passage numerous times. And, and, and most of the time, we're looking at it from, a, from kind of a multi-ethnic ministry angle and, and talking about how Jesus reached across the ethnic lines. But I want to look at it today through the lens of worship. Because if I remember right from my studies, and I didn't write this down, 
But I believe that worship is mentioned in the book of John like 11, 12, 13 times or something like that. And in this particular passage are like nine of those references. So there is a lot to learn in this passage about worship. And so let me give you a quick summary of it. For those of you who know this passage inside and out, please forgive me. But here you have Jesus, and Jesus is, is traveling with his disciples from, from Jerusalem to Galilee, goes through the land of Samaria, comes to this place uh, near the town of Sychar. He's at a well. It's the middle of the day. His disciples are hungry. The disciples go into town to eat. Jesus is left by himself, and a woman comes to the well in the middle of the day. We're told that she is a Samaritan woman. And as I have explained numerous times in the past, Samaritans were people of mixed ethnicity. That's who they were. They're a blending of, of Jewish people and Assyrian people from about the 7th century B.C. And what had happened in the 7th century B.C., about 720 B.C., the Assyrians come in, attack the northern kingdom of Israel, take away most of the, 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 the trained, wealthy Jews and, and move them to Assyria, keep all of the poor Jews and leave them in, in the northern kingdom. And then the Assyrians bringing people from their towns and from other towns, and the people, these Jews, they intermarry with the Assyrians. Now, this was forbidden in the Old Testament. Jews were not allowed to intermarry with other people who were not Jews. It had nothing to do with ethnicity. This is that command in the Bible that was used to say that, hey, Latinos can't marry black people or white people can't marry black people. That, that passage was abused back then. But what happens here is, is the passage was you can't intermarry if you are with, with someone who's not a Jew, someone who's not a follower of God. And so what happens is the Jews who remain faithful to God in the captivity, when they come back, they find that all the people that got left behind, they were unfaithful to God. And so you've got this huge rivalry going on. And rejected by the Jews... The Samaritans, they decide, we're going to create our own faith system. And so what they decide to do is they're going to just hold to the first five books of the Old Testament, uh, the Pentateuch, and that they're going to ultimately create their own temple because, as I told you a few weeks ago, when the Jews went to, to restore the temple, the Samaritans said, hey, let us build with you. And the Jews said, we won't want any part of you. And so the Samaritans build their own temple. And... That's all the backstory because now this conversation comes on. This woman comes up to Jesus. They're having a conversation by this well. And uh, in the midst of the conversation, Jesus tells the woman to go and find her husband or go bring her husband back. To which the woman replies, I don't have a husband. To which Jesus says to her, you're right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the dude you're living with right now, Jesus didn't use the word dude, but the, the guy that you're living with right now, the man you're living with right now, is not your husband. Now, you can imagine, this rocks the woman's world. You can, you can think about it. You're going through, you're talking to some stranger, and the stranger starts talking about details of your intimate life. You're going to be freaked out by that. And she wants to know how this guy that she just met is able to tell her all these things about her life. And so let me pick up the passage in John chapter 4, starting in verse 19. 
The woman said to Jesus, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where you ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Shocked that Jesus would know anything about her private life, she says, I perceive that you are a prophet. And then she does what any of us will do when someone begins to talk to us about something we don't want to talk about. She changes the subject. She wants to divert things. And specifically, the subject that she changes to is the issue of religion and the worship differences between the Samaritans and the Jews. And she says, we Samaritans, we worship on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, that's right in front of us, which happened to have a, she doesn't add this, but which happened to have a temple until you Jews, uh, about a century ago, came and destroyed the stinking thing. She was kind enough not to throw that out. And then she says, but you Jews, you worship in your temple in Jerusalem. And for this woman... It is all about location. For her, that's what worship is about. Where, where do you connect with God? Where do you worship God? We Samaritans, we connect with God on Mount Gerizim. You Jews, you connect with God in Jerusalem. And the same is true for religious people all around the world. There always seems to be a place where one connects with whatever God they worship. There's a, a Pakistani family that, that lives uh, in the apartment complex that's about four doors up from our, our house. And uh, Hafsa, ha, who, who's the, the primary English speaker in the family, she's probably about 22, 23 years old. Uh, she's befriended our family, we befriended them. They, Lots of times they need a pickup truck to go somewhere and I'll drive them wherever they need with our church pickup truck. Occasionally Hafsa will need something to, to print out and she'll bring it to our house and we'll print it on our laser printer only to discover that, that we're printing out Arabic prayers to be used at the Muslim mosque down in Steelton, which used to be St. James's Catholic Church where Kathy and I happened to get married. So that's kind of crazy thinking about that. But Muslims, where do they connect with God? They connect with God in the mosque. Hindus connect with God in their temple. Catholics connect with God in the midst of the mass, in a cathedral. Some people connect with God in nature. And this woman wants Jesus to tell her, where in the world is the right place to actually worship? And in verses 21, 22, and 23, Jesus answers her in a question that she, in a manner which she doesn't expect. Look at what it says. It says, Jesus said to her, 
Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you don't know, we worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Notice, Jesus doesn't give her the answer that she's expecting. She was expecting Jesus to say that, that you need to worship in Jerusalem at our temple. Jesus doesn't say that. Nor does Jesus say it doesn't matter where you worship. Instead, he says this. The hour is coming, and now is here, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. What does Jesus mean when he says the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth? The hour that is coming specifically is used in the New Testament to refer to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. On that hour, the moment that Jesus dies at the hands of the Roman authorities and the Jewish religious leaders, something remarkable happens. On that Friday, April 3rd, 33 AD, something amazing happens. Look at the crucifixion account in Matthew 27. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice. He's nailed to a cross right here. He's been on the cross for several hours. He cries out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Notice he didn't die like death was upon him. He yields up his spirit. He, he, he gives up his life. No one takes his life away. He gives it up. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The curtain that is being referred to there is the curtain that, that separated the, the holy of holies from the holy place in the Jewish temple. It's this monster curtain, like this black curtain that we have here. But instead of being just yay thick, it's like this thick. And the intention, the intention of this curtain was to keep people from being able to go into the most holy place where the very presence of God existed. And only one time a year was the high priest allowed to actually enter into that place. But at that hour, the moment that Jesus gives up his life, there is no longer a need for a temple. It is torn asunder that veil. Access to God now is available without having to go through the temple. And the reason that you don't need an earthly temple is because Jesus becomes the temple. Listen to what Jesus says about himself in John chapter 2. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He's talking to the Jewish religious leaders. And the Jews said to him, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? 
Jesus is talking about his body. They're talking about this physical temple. And Jesus, it says this, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. Why is there no need for an earthly temple? Because Jesus is the temple. In the temple, the Jewish temple, there was an altar for the, the daily sacrifice for sin. We no longer need that. Why? The altar isn't needed because Jesus is the eternal sacrifice for sin. In the temple, there's a hundred pound pure gold, well there was a hundred pound pure gold menorah, a lampstand that, that lighted the holy place. Why? Because there's no windows in the holy place. The lampstand is no longer needed. Why? Because Jesus is the light of the world. In the temple, there was a, a, a table of showbread. It contained 12 loaves of bread that were considered holy, representing God's covenant and provision for the 12 tribes of Israel as they wandered in the desert. That table, those loaves, are no longer required. Why? Because Jesus is the bread of life. And Jesus, and Jesus alone, is the way that you and I and the Samaritan woman ultimately connect with and worship God. You only get to God through Jesus. No other way. Now you will run into all kinds of people who tell you that they seek to connect with God, to worship with God in all kinds of different ways. They will tell you that they worship God in nature, through meditation, through walking through a prayer labyrinth, uh, through serving others, or, or one of a thousand other actions. And, and, and some of those things, they actually help us to, to see attributes of God. But if you really want to connect with God, if you really want to know God, if you really want to worship God, it only comes through Jesus and Jesus alone. And in John 14, Jesus can't make it any more clear. He says this, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one. It is Jesus and Jesus alone that is access to God. The world thinks that's completely intolerant. I get it. But we didn't make it up. Jesus himself said it. His disciples died for those words. Those who followed him died for those words. Christians today die for those words. So the first thing that we learn about how to worship God from Jesus' words in John 4 is that it is only through Jesus that we can connect with God. Now there's a second thing that we learn, and I need to move quickly on this. And, and what we learn here is that we worship God in spirit and in truth. Look at verses 23 and 24 again. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must, operative word, worship in spirit and truth. There are three great musts in the Gospel of John. Three things that we are told that must happen. The first is found in John 3, 7. You must be born again. 
You go eight verses further. In John 3.15, Jesus says, the Son of Man must be lifted up. Dual meaning there. He, gets, he must be lifted up and placed upon the cross, and he must be lifted up in glory into heaven. In verse 24, John 4, we find the third must in the Gospel of John. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Just like we must be born again, just like Jesus must be lifted up, we must worship God in spirit and truth. But what does that mean? Let me briefly deal what it means to, to worship in spirit and then deal with what means to worship in truth. It is absolutely critical that we notice what is not in that verse, which is the definite article, the. Jesus is not talking about worshiping in the spirit, which would have been the Holy Spirit. Jesus is talking about worshiping in our spirit. In the words of James Boyce, Jesus is saying that nothing is true worship of God except that which takes place in a man or woman's spirit. Now, many of us worship with our bodies. We come to church and believe that because we have our bodies in the right place at the right time, that we have actually worshiped. Brothers and sisters, showing up for church is not worship. Tuning in on the live stream is not worship. Where your body is, is, is superfluous. During the first 18 years of my life, my mom and dad and I, we religiously attended worship services every week. And although I was in the right place at the right time, I can't remember a single time that I was actually worshiping. I may have been singing, I may have been praying, I, I, I may have been reciting the, the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, I may have been serving as a, an acolyte and lighting the candles or carrying the crucifix, I may have been doing any of those things, I may have been listening to the pastor's preacher, but if there was one thing that Mike Leonza wasn't doing in the first 18 years of his life, it was worshiping God. And I was in a church every weekend. Think about that. How many people are, are, are in this church right now who your body's in the right place at the right time, but you are not worshiping? That was me. Others of us, we worship with our souls, our emotions. We're, we're moved by the singing and occasionally, most of the time, through Pastor Ben and Mike Bongo, we might be moved by the preaching. And we respond with our emotions. Tears run down our cheeks. We feel some conviction in our heart. A smile forms on our face. We're moved emotionally, but that isn't worship either. True worship happens in our spirit, the part of us that is divine in nature, the part that can actually commune with God. It's the part of us that longs for God's presence. If you are longing for God's presence, you are worshiping. 
It's the part that is overwhelmed by his holiness. That that we come before God and we're like, oh my goodness, you are so great. You are amazing. It's the part of us that is crushed by our own sinfulness. We worship when we realize how incredibly far away our sin has moved us from God. It's the part of us that longs for his mercy, the part of us that is blown away by his forgiveness and grace. And when that happens, when those things come upon us, regardless of where our body is located or what emotions we might experience, when we experience the fullness of God in that way, we have worshiped in spirit. Now, do you understand what that means? Worshiping in spirit is independent of form. What we wear to church is superfluous. It's independent of whether we sing hymns or choruses. It's independent of what instruments that we use. It's independent of, of whether we're, we're in a rented, stark church gymna- or gymnasium that we're using for a church or whether we're in this beautiful Gothic cathedral. It's independent of whether you, we sit or stand or kneel. It's independent of, of responsive readings or, or calls to worship or the order of services. Most of all, It's independent of my preferences and yours. Totally independent of that. None of that matters. Okay, quickly, worshiping in truth. What does it mean to worship God in truth? First, it means to come to God honestly. With nothing hidden, an open book fully conscious of our sin, all by by God's holiness, desperate for his grace. That's what it means to worship in truth. Come before God honestly. God, this is who I am. This is what I've done. These are my fears. These are my sins. These are my concerns. These are my regrets. These are my hopes. God, I'm exposed before you. That is not how most people come to God. Jesus helped us understand that in Matthew 15. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. How many times have we come into this room or tuned in on that television set and we have come as pretenders? holding anger in our hearts towards others. People who we might know, people who we might not even know. We might have anger in our hearts to entire groups of people. How many times do we have bitter anger against God and we walk into this room? How many times do we hide sin in our hearts or we have a bright smile on our face but darkness inside the depths of our soul? And we go along singing the songs, bowing our heads in prayer, 
greeting one another, talking over coffee, standing for the reading of God's word, pretending to listen to the sermon. It's all a sham. It's totally bogus, devoid of any honesty. How many times have we honored God with our lips, but our hearts were so incredibly far from him? You see, God isn't looking for our presence or our perfection. He's looking for our humility and our honesty. And worshiping in truth also means this. And it's the most important thing of all. That however we worship, it's got to be based on this. And nothing else. Period. It means that all that we do must line up with God's revealed truth as recorded in the 66 books of the Bible. And Jesus' high priestly prayer, a prayer that he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, in John chapter 17, Jesus' longest recorded prayer, he prays for himself, he prays for his disciples, and then he prays for you and me. 2,000 years ago, moments before he was going to be arrested, hours before he was going to be nailed to a cross, Jesus was praying for you, and he was praying for me. And he prayed the words that I'm about to read to you in the middle of his prayer, in the part that was for his 11 disciples, and this is what he says. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. We must worship in spirit and truth. We must worship in alignment with God's word. And when we do that, it always, always, always brings joy to our Father. Let me pray for us, and then we'll close. Dear God, thank you for this time. Uh, that we can share together. Uh, Lord, it goes quickly for me. I don't know quickly it goes for other people. But uh, God, I praise you for your goodness. I thank you that we don't have to figure out these things on our own. And Lord, I ask your forgiveness for all of those times where I've tried to connect to you apart from Jesus, where I've attempted to worship you Lord, by just being at a certain place at a certain time, where I felt like I connected to you because I had some kind of emotional experience, would you forgive me for those times? And God, would you help me to realize that you desire for me to connect with you on, on the, the most intimate level of all, my, my spirit to your spirit. And Lord, you desire that not only for me, but for these fine people in this room and at home right now. And Lord, I pray that you would protect this church in the days and, and weeks and months and years to come where the enemy will continue to attack God's people and God's word. I pray that we would stand firmly on your truth, knowing that it is unwavering, knowing that it is life. Lord, thank you for this time that we could come together 
and celebrate with one another. And now as we wrap up with a final song, I pray, Lord God, that you would speak deep into our hearts. It's through your son's name we pray. Amen. Just stand with